Well, hello, listeners. Welcome to the Content Clearinghouse. I'm Brett Chisholm. And I'm Josh Evans. And on today's episode, I talk about another quote-unquote action sport I've jumped into recently, bird watching. Hashtag bird nerds. On the content circuit, we discuss an amazing podcast, again, and a YouTube channel that rivals most horror movies. And then Josh dives down a brain bug hole with a classic tale of apes versus insects. If you'd like to know more about which camp Josh and I fall into, it's the one with boobs. So do your part, you worthless maggot. Join the Content Clearinghouse mobile infantry and download this episode. That's an order. I have one rule. Everyone listens and no one quits. In case you haven't figured it out yet, it's Starship Troopers. Movies, shows, and video games. Podcast books and their acclaims. Let their favorite content become yours. It's the Content Clearing House. Content Clearing House. And it starts right now. Well, uh, dude, how was your weekend? Happy July 4th. That was yesterday. Uh, it was pretty awesome, man. We went and got fireworks for Isla for the first time, and then we let her stay up late, and we did like a fireworks show out in the um, out in the cul-de-sac, and she stayed up way past her bedtime, and I'm happy to report that she did not threaten to kick anyone in the grundle, so she handled <laughs> staying up late very well. How about you? What'd you do? That's excellent. Um, let's see. I listened to a lot of Reply All. I guess I can save that for the content circuit, but um, I did seven skydives this weekend, which Ooh. was awesome. I, I uh, You've talked about Melissa Lowe before, and uh, my first free fly skydive, uh, not in the wind tunnel, but actual skydive in 12 years for free flying was with Melissa, and I'm kind of looking at, at uh, her husband, who's the drop zone owner, Ben, and I said, "Hey, can I can I free fly your rental gear? Is that okay? Because I'm renting gear, and I got the okay. And man, it was fun. I mean, it's like that's why I skydive, and I'm skydiving. And I mean, it, free flying is just free flying with somebody, and just like having that camaraderie of like just some skills that you can, um, you know, just just." play with in the sky and just be like super comfortable and just kind of have that connection with somebody that you've never really met before. It's, it's a great sport, man. It's awesome. Yeah. I mean, I saw your videos. Awesome. And you got to go free flying with a total legend, Melissa, yeah. just like right off the bat. That's so awesome. I'm very jealous, buddy. Oh, they're, they're a really cool couple. Um, I also, when I was out there, I was camping by myself a little, solo uh camping which was awesome and last night on fourth of july after a little uh camp host shindig my awesome neighbors they also live in an airstream we've known each other on instagram uh they they started following us in 2014 because we both bought our airstream the same year the same size airstream the same almost the same type but different interior and now we're living next to each other at this state park uh, and they are just really, really cool people. And people, um, uh, this bird lady that comes in and is kind of a naturalist volunteer for the park. She's she's nicknamed our part of the state park the Airstream Alley. Um, so oh, yeah, we got these two we got these two airstreams next to each other. So last night we went over to their airstream. We set up chairs outside, and they have this sweet projector. 
and they projected free solo on the side of the airstream. So we oh, watched a man. movie outside. <laughs> Dude, it that was so legendary. So cool. Oh my god, it was amazing. Yeah. They're awesome. I mean they they just like they're just well traveled. They, you know, know just cool tricks like that. Like I never would have thought to buy a little projector and then just like project on the side of the airstream. And then of course we're watching free solo, which I'm going to have to talk about at some point. That is great. uh, You know, I mean, I think of your episode on Valley uprising and uh, good Lord. I mean, it's just Alex Honnold is just such a, such a legend. I mean that, that movie is, it's just one of the craziest things I've ever seen in my life. And we talked about it a little bit during Valley uprising, how, Jimmy Chin, the photographer, didn't want to encourage Alex Honnold to actually film the movie, and so he was like torn between going up on the wall and recording it, or you know, possibly discouraging one of his best friends from doing this thing that everybody thought was crazy. Like that's just like that's just like such an epic human moment, and I can totally see you know if I was if I was in that position too, I think I would have the exact same reaction because it's like. That is your job is, you know, rock climbing filmmaking. But at the same time, it's like the idea of free climbing El Cap just seems like just such a, a suicide mission. So, yeah, that's. Oh, it's. It, what, what, wasn't it. Ha- was it El Cap or was it Half Dome? Uh, I guess I it was El Cap. El Cap. Yeah, that's the big one. Okay. Yeah. Oh, my gosh, dude. Just, just unbelievable. Um, but speaking of action sports, since we're both, uh, you know, lovers of all things thrilling, it's like half of what we ever talk beating. about. Yeah. So I'm gonna bring another another pastime of mine into the mix here. Bird watching uh, <laughs> is today's off top discussion. Uh, speaking of action now, sports, it's a real workout for your eyeballs. It, you know, when I actually have really sensitive eyes. Um, so you say that, but I actually, at the end of the day, if I've been on the water all day or I've been outside all day, even with sunglasses on, my eyes are like pretty red and sensitive and, and, uh, boy, it, <laughs> it is, it can be a little like, uh, do I really want to look at that bird? But no, I actually, these birds aren't going to look at themselves. <laughs> that's right. Somebody's got to. Uh, play peekaboo, oogle them, um, <laughs> oogle the birds. <laughs> so you laugh, but uh, this honestly has become my wife and I's uh, one of our favorite like weird hobbies that we never like decided to get into. It just kind of, it just kind of happened to us. So let me get give you just a little bit of a backstory. So. Um, it was last summer when we started this like camp host thing for the summer. We went to Jordanelle State Park. It's outside of Park City in Utah. And we were actually brought on the team, not to campground hosts like we're doing here at the state park, but to be at the uh, nature center. They have a nature center that's on the kind of relaxed scenic side of Jordanelle State Park. I think it's Rock Cliff, if I remember correctly. But anyway, this, this nature center had been just shuttered it just closed for i believe 11 years and we they just had budget cuts we were the volunteers that were kind of handed the keys 
and said like, okay, you, this is yours now. Take it over, and you know we're gonna send visitors your way, and you're gonna be kind of uh, promoting crazy. the park. And dude, it, it was like a huge honor. And I don't know what exactly it was, because I think they were planning uh, us to do this project before we even got there. But I think they could just tell in kind of our email exchanges before coming to the park that we just traveled a lot. We love the outdoors. We love animals. We love learning about whatever place we're in. Um, but well, the nature center was awesome. It did take a lot of cleaning. We spent about two weeks every night after our other job cleaning the crap out of this thing. I mean, there was taxidermied animals like piled in a freezer in the back. There was stacks of papers. Texas I mean, chainsaw it, massacre house. It, it was more like if um, parks and rec, if Leslie Nope was a hoarder a little bit, I mean, you could tell there was a, a the person that ran the nature center uh, before who I, I think was an actual park ranger, not not a volunteer. It's definitely someone on the on the state park staff there in Utah. They put a lot of love and work into this place, and they had like posters and banners and and photo albums. I mean, it was really cool cleaning it because we organized the back, we organized and cleaned and sanitized the front. Um, and you know, I say sanitized. This was pre COVID. It was just that freaking dusty. But anyway, so um, being there, it was very relaxing. We would get the occasional visitor where we could talk about, you know, some of the educational exhibits they had. There was a very, it was like a little miniature museum. It was very nice. Um, and then there was these boardwalks outside where people could walk around and check out the local wildlife. And there was a lot of birds. And of course, a big part of the exhibit is all the local birds in the area and there was binoculars in the back, and there was a book that I'm going to talk a little bit about, the uh, Kaufman Field Guide to uh, Birds of North America. And we just kind of slipped into spending our quote-unquote work time checking out the birds that were coming in and out. And for her birthday last summer, I got her a nice pair of binoculars. I'm not usually a good gift giver. Like, Brie is an awesome gift giver. I kind of suck at that, but this, I feel like I really nailed it. And then I also got her a hummingbird feeder for the Airstream. That same year, her brother, Nick, bought her a equally awesome but different hummingbird feeder. Like, they were the the exact same kinds, but one was red and one was blue. Hummingbird so overload it was like at the Airstream. We just, we just lucked out. Well, now at the spot we're at, we have three hummingbird feeders because we found this, like, really badass retro looking one so it's it is it's airstream alley but if you go to the back of airstream alley there's the hummingbird block for sure um but i just want to talk a few minutes let me me ask you do you remember when we were i believe we were at copper mountain we were riding uh mountain bikes and we saw that hummingbird that was impersonating a bee i don't remember this that ring so we were down at the down at the base and we were just hanging out waiting for the lift and there was this hummingbird that was like really tiny and it was bee colored and it was flying around like a bee like it was pollinating uh different flowers and then it would like buzz around and then it would stop and then it would buzz around and it would stop and at first we thought it was a bee but then we got close to it and saw that it was a little tiny bird i think that i mean that was like such a such a crazy and interesting glimpse into like the world of natural adaptation. 
Yeah, that's very interesting. I mean, hummingbirds and bees definitely have a lot in common. I got the book in front of me right now, and I'm looking at the hummingbird page um, to see if there's anything like particularly small. The the ones that we have here are black-chinned and broad-tailed. Those are the two types of hummingbirds. We are expecting to see some rufous, which have more of like a rust color. They're very pretty. I have not seen one in real life, so I'm waiting to see the rufous. Do you like mark them off when you find them? We do. There's kind of a checklist in this book. We haven't really been on top of it, but but like it, it is a daily thing where we'll just be like sitting outside and, you know, her parents visited or whatever, and we're all having a meal. And then all of a sudden, Bree and I jump up and we're like, holy crap, is that a bald to the eagle? Because <laughs> so, so we just saw a bald eagle <laughs> to the birdmobile. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> so, so we just saw a bald eagle about two weeks ago, I think it was. Um, they're, they're very often confused with turkey vultures, which you see turkey vultures, at least in, you know, our, our state, they're very common and they're often misidentified with bald eagles because a very similar shape. And you're, a lot of times you're looking for that size and that shape, but obviously a turkey vulture is not as cool as a bald eagle. Uh, Right. (laughs) I mean, they, they serve their purpose, but they're scary. Uh, out on the highway near my house, uh, sometimes on the uh, on the road signs, it'll say like baby eagles flying because there are bald eagles that will fly around out here, and it's like it's like such a significant event that they put it up on the uh, on the roadside announcements instead of like, hey, buckle your seatbelt. They want to let you know that there are baby eagles flying. Yeah, I mean, if you go up to Alaska, eagles up there are like pigeons in New York. Like it's it's very funny how where you're located really changes what you see, like relation to it, or like a sure. relativity to it determines your relation to it. Yeah, I mean, if you see bald eagles all the time, you know they're beautiful birds, but you might not have the same visceral reaction as if you've seen one in your life. And in True. like Colorado and Utah, where we've spent most of the time in the last uh, year and a half or so. I mean, I've maybe seen a bald eagle three times. I mean, it's it's very uncommon. It's very cool. But th- that's the thing. Everybody gets excited about bald eagles, I would say, at least in the lower 48. But yeah, if well, you if you're American. don't know... Yeah, America. Yeah, if you but have if red you blood in your veins. Start to get in t- <laughs> if you start to get into birding or bird watching, you start to get excited about the Rufus hummingbird or the northern harrier or seeing a pelican is really awesome, or seeing a crane, or knowing you know a blue heron. So, um, I, I do just want to take a few minutes to encourage people to give this a shot. You really only need two things uh, for bird watching. You need some binoculars, and you need this book. This book is awesome. It's super well written. It's it's like the uh, you know the definitive expert put together guide for identification it's super easy to use um and it kind of breaks it down in sections it explains how binoculars work and you know how to get out there and start doing this um and then as far as binoculars go i mean you can find a really good pair for say 50 bucks 80 bucks now i tend to think you should just go a little bit higher uh, than that, because you can use a good pair of binoculars for so many things, not just bird watching. Uh, what we, what I got, Bree, they're called the Celestron Trail Seekers, and they're just right in that 
I mean, you can spend a lot on binoculars. You can spend thousands. These are uh, $219 on Amazon. So once you get to that next like $200 range, oh my gosh, you just go so much higher in quality. I feel like anything having to do with like optics or lenses, you oh, really get definitely. what you pay for. Dude, I mean, it's like electronics, right? I mean, it's like drones. Like you're flying a pair of goggles. You're such a visual creature. The better your goggles are, the more fun you're going to have flying drones. That's like anything with a human pursuit. The better you can see it, the more fun you're going to have. Totally. Absolutely. And these, the thing is, it's not like they have this amazing zoom. They have like really bigger lenses. So they have a great, you know, the, it's a great amplification, but it's just such a big lens and the color is just so clear. And I mean, I used, I took these things out camping the other uh, night and I saw the ISS go overhead and of course I grabbed oh, my Celestrons, so you know? <laughs> Could you make out um, any details yeah, super cool. On the ISS? Uh, not on the uh, not on the ISS. There are some Celestrons that are made for stargazing where you can actually see like globular clusters and you know pretty high detail things but they're not they're not for use in the daytime they have different lenses mm, and you yeah. can like damage your eyes <laughs> like in the in the you can actually damage the lenses on uh, some on some celestron binoculars or telescopes like having them out in the in the daytime i believe but these yeah, these are meant open for bird watching right but the i mean they're waterproof they're super tough uh, we're going to take them on our 30 mile uh, stand up paddleboard river trip that we're planning next week got no concerns about you know dropping them getting them wet i mean they're pretty they're pretty dang tough and they're super super good um and then like i said that book the kaufman field guide uh to birds of north america these are the only two things you need and you just like we're not huge on it we don't go out looking for birds we don't go on like treks you know to to knock birds off the list or whatever some people do that that's awesome i mean we're kind of like i think the term is backyard birders like we kind of started with just weekend warriors yeah exactly like what's that thing and then it kind of like we got our hummingbird feeders and we love to watch the hummingbirds and we're like okay let's you know learn about them and then you start to see birds of prey and then you start to get interested in the little birds the mountain bluebirds or the swifts and uh, the swallows. So it's, it's dude, it's so, it's like addictive and like in a, in the same way that an action sport is where you just know nothing about it. Right. And then as soon as you start to learn, you just like, you want to do it more. You want to learn more. It just like enhances all other aspects of your life. Cause you just start to notice things you didn't notice before. Now, it, you know, it, it's not going to have the same effect on your I don't know what what do they talk about in free cell? Your amygdala, you know, you don't, you're not gonna have a, a your heart palpitating. Uh, you're not gonna get like an adrenaline but, dump, but you will. I mean, I could totally get behind the idea of like like the collection aspect of it, where it just makes you like more present where you are because you're actually paying attention to the world around you because you want to, you know, you want to see more birds. It's almost like it's like an avenue to expanding your personal awareness bubble totally and you know today uh there was a big snake i think it was a bull snake um over at rifle falls you milk park where i was working for the day i i uh i thought about you but i you know i'm coyote peterson i am not but um you know somebody asked me what kind of snake it was and 
if it's not a rattlesnake, I'm not I'm not that interested, and I don't know anything about snakes. Somebody's asked me like what kind of bug this thing is because you know I'm wearing like a state park vest and I have like a big ranger type hat on, so people think I know every plant, bug, you know, snake, which is awesome that people ask. I'm I'm super engaged in that kind of curiosity, but for you some just reason, make something up. like <laughs> yeah, that's a blue that's tail the, that's the Australian slitherer. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's the Voldemort Slytherin. <laughs> uh, that's an entertainment reference for you. That's right. Uh, Hogwarts for life. Um, so the thing about birds, though, just to kind of sell this on you, like birds are people. That is a controversial <laughs> statement. But no, I, I agree. You start to. There's like some of the most magical creatures on the planet. If, if you start to watch them, I mean, they're super social animals. They're intelligent. I mean, crows are one of the only species that uses tools besides, like, dolphins and primates. I mean, crows, dude, they're so smart. And I, I'm kind of afraid of crows. Uh, we've actually, hiking in the Uintas in Utah, we've seen a crow. Actually, I think it was a raven, uh, which is a little bigger. But we saw it, like, in the tree with robins around it going crazy and it found a robin's nest in front of our eyes and it grabbed a baby robin chick out of the Ugh. nest my wife was instantly reduced to tears the robins were attacking this raven i'm, I'm I, my wife's gonna listen to this episode and and uh correct me if it was a crow, open up wounds dude <laughs> yeah dude it it was uh it was insane and i i enjoyed watching it because it was like a nature documentary but but it, sick it also was like, well, yeah. I mean, I think <laughs> I do have maybe that Alex Honnold. My amygdala is just a little small. Dude, sorry to bounce around on topics, but that guy's like a psychopath a little bit. Alex Honnold is is like a more of a robot uh, on the robot to bird human spectrum. Well, did you hear on, it was the Joe Rogan interview where they were talking about beta blockers and... They were talking about how it like it suppresses your instinct to get worked up, and he was saying that that would be a terrible thing for climbing because you want to be calm for the most part, but when you know the action starts, you do want your system to like perk up and give you that shot of adrenaline and make you feel fear because it's like it's what engages your survival instinct. So. Yeah, it, just, it doesn't seem like Alex Honnold really has that. It seems like he needs to be in extremely risky situations to get any enjoyment out of life. Eh, I mean, I don't think that he would. I don't think he would have gotten to where he was without having like a finely tuned survival instinct. And I, I imagine, just speaking from, you know, the mindset of someone who does action sports, that it's probably not he chasing adrenaline because. You know, you and I know that's not why we skydive. We don't skydive to chase adrenaline. The people that do that are the people that end up flying their parachutes into the ground, breaking their legs, or doing like some crazy thing, getting in a free fall collision. You know, the the adrenaline is kind of the thing that you're trying to either suppress or at least learn to work within its realm. You know, like to me, the, kind of the addiction of these sports is that you can be in a scenario where no human is ever really supposed to be where you have no evolutionary advantage 
but to still be able to learn to work physically, but also, you know, the mind game of functioning in that environment. And I would imagine that the extreme edges of big wall rock climbing, like what Alex Honnold is doing, is probably the same kind of addiction. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. You know, it's funny, the the last, so I guess this summer, um, you know, after after a long hiatus of skydiving, I, I've done uh, 11 skydives, I think now, and I'm very nervous in the plane ride up because I do not want to get injured, you know? I mean, I'm not worried about uh, anything worse than an injury, of course. It, it, it is, the, the risks are mitigated extremely well, and I have a very healthy perspective and respect for it, especially at my advanced age of 31 years old. Uh, but I don't want to get hurt and I don't have a lot of, uh, canopy flying confidence. Um, so I still feel that fear and kind of have that little voice in my head. That's like, what the heck are you doing? You don't need to be, you don't need to be doing this, but I like noticing that and participating in the activity anyway. And as soon as I'm at the door, I'm like, Oh, I'm so glad I'm doing this. This is awesome. I mean, you saw in that video with Melissa, like it's just like a huge grin, on my face because it just, it looks, it just looks so cool when you're looking at the world in that perspective. And it feels so good on your body and on your mind when you can kind of, like you said, work with that fear. Uh, but to get, to get back on topic here, uh, strap on your parachute and jump into the world <laughs> of bird watching. Nice segue. <laughs> you will, you will not regret it. I'm going to link two articles in the show notes. There's some videos on YouTube from the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. The one that I'm going to link to is one that Bree was trying to get me to watch for months, man. I, I can't even tell you, but I, I finally got around to it. It is fantastic. And it's called Inside Birding, uh, Size and Shape. And they just talk about kind of the four basic things, size and shape, color pattern, behavior, and habitat. And those little things like, a you know, telling a turkey vulture and a bald eagle apart when the sun's not really at the right angle, so you can't see the color and it's very far away and you forgot your binoculars, but you can actually, one of the best ways to tell the difference between a turkey vulture and a bald eagle besides kind of the wingtips is the way that they fly. The bald eagle flies like a boss. It does not waver. And you'll see the turkey vulture kind of, I don't know, it's like a, it's like a thermal or like a, if you're watching a Hershey or a paraglider, yeah, they kind of, kind of, uh, they just don't fly like bosses, like they own the sky where a bald eagle does. So just fun things like that. Uh, Check out that link inside birding. And then also the Autobahn birding page. Um, They have this great, I don't know, there's articles on identifying birds, birding etiquette, binocular guides, kind of how to start, what you need. They're they're really awesome. And, you know, I we kind of laughed about it at the beginning, kind of comparing birding to action sports, but it it is super fun and it has that same addictive nature and it just gives you so much more of an appreciation for your surroundings. And it kind of like leads to these little fun moments where you're out somewhere, you hear this crazy call. And you're looking and looking, and you 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 know you don't know you don't know what this thing is. You might. <laughs> Whoa! <laughs> Those are my two bird noises. <laughs> you're a very talented bird, Billy. <laughs> um, 
that was an old Conan O'Brien reference. <laughs> that okay, is. we're gonna link to that video too. That's a good <laughs> one. It's actually a um, red-tailed hawk, Brett. <laughs> that's right. Very talented bird, Billy. Um, and you know, you you see something, you don't know what it is. You get out your book, you flip through it, you look, you look, and then you have that, you know, that little dopamine rush, just like land in your parachute safely on the ground. You figure out what kind of bird it is, and then you can brag to all your friends, and then they'll call you bird nerds. And if you're like Brie and I, you'll take that as a term of endearment and not an insult. Hashtag bird nerds. Where you at? Well, yeah, bird nerds, contact us and let us know. And uh, if you take up bird watching, also let us know. I'm gonna. That sounds good. I, we got we got tons of birds in my backyard, and I don't know what they are, but I do like watching them. Maybe uh, I'll send you this book. Do you have a Do you have any binoculars? Uh, no, but our backyard is only about fourteen feet to the edge of it, so yeah, I could probably it, it do does that. Help and if make you can it see it up close. It's it's fun to it's fun to really like spy on them and and uh, really get a good good look at them. Yeah. See them when they're like doing nasty things. <laughs> Actually, Bree did see um, two woodpeckers mate in front of a window at my dad's house, and she like walked. I think I was still in bed, and she walked into the bedroom, and she said, "Brett, I ju- I just saw." The two giant woodpeckers mating. She kind of looked a little shell shocked. It was like me seeing that, <laughs> seeing that raven eat the. It's like, was that really cool or really disturbing? I I don't know, man. She gets a glimpse into all the most natural things nature will throw at her. Yeah. Well, that's awesome, man. Yeah, for those moments. S- send me the book for sure. Um, okay, I'm gonna do it. What's on your content circuit besides bird books? Just, just reply all, man. Oh it's an man, amazing it's so podcast. good. I'm so glad you covered it. I, I just, I just can't even express into words on a podcast about content how freaking good that. Luckily, they can just is. listen to my episode and they can get a very eloquent breakdown of why reply all is one of the greatest podcasts of all time. <laughs> That's why you covered it. I, I, I can't even handle it. You're so just shell shocked by how good it is. <laughs> that's, that's right. How far into it? Uh, like how many episodes have you listened to? Uh, well, I didn't have service at the campground I was at. So it's kind of restricted to what I, uh, had already downloaded. So I would say I'm probably about 10 episodes, but I'm kind of jumping around. Um, let me pull up my, my thing here. So Bed Bugs and Aliens was amazing. The Woman in the Air Conditioner was amazing. That was number 147 and 148. Uh, I love those yes, yes, no's where they talk about tweets. Because I kind of feel that's like... That's the best section. <laughs> that's like the like a star of the show. It's 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 amazing. Um, I kind of feel like Alex Bloomberg in that I don't. I'm I'm not on Twitter, so I a lot of the references I don't know. But I I think I'm a little bit more on the internet than he is. So I do understand some of the. Re- I don't know. It's kind of I, no matter what if you're a if you're a Twitter person or not that those episodes are just unbelievable. But I listened to the Real Enemy about the 
Alabama Democratic Party, uh, thank you for noticing about the guy in Santa Fe that rates everything on Google reviews. Dark pattern about Intuit tax. I mean, I could go on and on. Um, but dude, I'm going to listen to you know their whole catalog and it's probably going to happen in the next month. I mean, it's that good. Yeah, it's so amazing. If you if you guys are not already sold on Reply All, if you're not already listening to it, for God's sakes, people, go listen to Reply All for the second time now. We don't have very Do much it. content that gets covered twice on here. Just the Matrix and Reply All. <laughs> yep, that's it. And free solo a little bit. Yep, that's true. So I found so what about this, you? I found this new YouTube channel. Actually, I, I've been watching it off and on for a while, but I just like really got into it this week. It's called Dead Meat. Uh, it's with this guy, James A. Janice, and it's just this, almost every one of his episodes is him doing the kill count for some horror movie. So he'll do like a summary of the horror movie, and then he runs through every single kill, but it's a comedy show. Like He's like so good at commentary and banter with himself. So they'll do they'll do the full summary of the movie and then he'll break down each kill and he has a kill counter on the screen and he like explains like which kill is his favorite, which one's the worst. It, I, I think that I might actually like watching dead meat more than I like actually watching the horror movies since most of these movies are plagued with horrible acting and lame stories and bad writing, but he makes all those things a feature, not a bug because he makes it so much fun to just watch him mock this stuff or to you know spotlight the stuff that's really great and the stuff that's really great in these movies those sweet sweet kills so if you're looking for something good horror related and if you're like me and you've been disappointed with the last 10 horror movies you watch dead meat is an awesome alternative the last you've been disappointed with the last 10 horror movies that's my takeaway from, <sighs> from what they've been said. letting me down although wow I'm surprised you're sticking with it, though. Good on you. I just love those sweet, sweet kills, Brett. But I did rewatch a horror movie lately, uh, recently that is actually amazing. It's called Would You Rather, and it just builds off of the premise of the game Would You Rather, you know, that you'd play as a kid. But I've heard about that. Yeah, dude, it is twisted, and the writing is amazing. It's uh, it's it's like one of the real gems out there. So if uh. Dead meat doesn't satiate your bloodlust. Would you rather? We'll probably do it for you. All right. Well, let's uh, take a quick break, buddy, and then we will be back with some more sweet, sweet content. Ooh, content. The Content Clearinghouse is brought to you by Best Maps Ever. They make checklist posters for outdoor adventurers who want to see it all. If you want to visit every national park in the United States, climb every 14er in Colorado, or ski every slope in New England, Best Maps Ever posters are the perfect way to track and inspire your quest. Every map is lovingly designed with icons marking each location so you can stick a pin in the icon or color it in with a marker as you check off the areas you've been to. They offer mounting and framing services for maps that are ready for pinning right out of the box, or if you prefer to mount the map yourself, there are tips on the website to help you with that. They have a slew of maps relating to protected areas and public lands like state parks, national forests, and even more obscure maps like the National Wild and Scenic Rivers system. So Josh, one of the maps my wife and I have mounted in our camper is the National Parks map. Now it's covered in pins because 
well, you know, Bree and I get around. And Best Maps Ever makes our gallivanting around the country even more fun because we can put a pin in the map to prove that we've been there and done that. No one could ever cheat that system, Brett. Well, it is on the honor system. Best Maps Ever does not employ any sort of pin-related security system that will come to your house and check and see if you've actually visited the places you've pinned. <gasps> Since you brought it up, I have uh, the skydiving drop zone map hanging up in my office. It's one of the few decorations I have that's not celebrating one of my many athletic achievements. In fact, it's hanging up on the wall right next to my world's most humble man trophy. <whistles> For all your cartographic needs, visit bestmapsever.com. They've got the best... Maps ever. Clear it out. Welcome back to the Content Clearinghouse. Josh, I got a question for you. Would you rather birdwatch as your job for the rest of your life or at uh, live your life as it is now, but at the end of your life, you get your brain sucked out by a big fat bug? Oh, uh, actually, I probably well, can I do both, Brett? You really sold me on bird watching. Don't <laughs> make right. me make these hard choices. Look, I'll All right. I'll bird watch and then get my brain sucked out. How about that? All right, all right, that, that sounds good. Well, that's a pretty good lead, and that's really was that just out of nowhere, Brett, or did you have an idea of what I was going to talk about today? That's a well, lucky guess. I did. I, I do have an idea. I actually just watched it before we started uh, recording, but I, I don't know if you're if you're talking about the book or the movie or both. I haven't read the movie or I haven't read the book in about I I don't know ten years or so. But I just watched the movie, and I cannot wait to hear what you have to say. Yeah, I guess contrary to popular belief of the audience, Brett and I do speak outside of this podcast. So Brett did know that I was going to be talking about Starship Troopers today. And Brett, I'm going to be talking about the book and the movie because oh yeah, they kind of coexist. And there are a lot of parallels between the two, but there's also some amazing differences, which I discovered Definitely. over the last month and a half whenever I was putting this together. And just so everyone is aware, we are going to spoil the shit out of this. I mean, as much as you can spoil something that is amazing as Starship Troopers, which is actually (laughs) absolutely zero. It's fantastic. It's unspoilable. But we're going to be talking about a lot of plot points. Sounds good to me. I guess we'll start with the book because that is where the whole thing starts. So this book was published in 1959 by Robert Heinlein. And if you are not familiar with Starship Troopers, just get out. But uh, the uh, the synopsis, the book, it's a near-future tale that follows a first-person narrative of Johnny Rico. And he's this rich kid that joins the military, and he's on the front lines of human interstellar expansion. He's in the uh, mobile infantry, and he battles with these sentient arachnids. I mean, it's essentially the exact same plot as the movie. So interspersed throughout uh, all this action, there are discussions about things like civic duties, juvenile delinquency, the horrors of war. The novel draws a lot of parallels between the uh, military battles with the arachnids and the Cold War. Uh, It also argues that a lack of discipline has led to a moral decline amongst the population, and it encourages the use of corporal punishment. Uh, 
another very strong theme in this book is the idea that only military veterans are allowed to vote. And some people criticize the book for touting like the importance of the military and everyday life of, you know, the free citizens of a country or of a, a government. And then other people said that Heinlein was, he was exploring the trappings of a government allowing the military to control the ruling class. So Robert Heinlein, uh, he wasn't, what was his politics? Do you know if, if he, you know, was glorifying uh, this kind of like military or militaristic regime in his book, this federation? Well, Robert Heinlein was certainly a supporter of the military, especially the ground forces. And the book is absolutely glorifying the idea of being in the mobile infantry. As for his politics, you know, like I said, the the critics were divided on whether he was serious. And he really thought that this idea of a totalitarian government was, was good. Or if... He was just like kind of pointing out and highlighting what can happen when these systems go too far. And that's just kind of the the sign of a great story and great sci-fi that's it's still debated to this day. Interesting. Yeah, it's I haven't read the book in a while, but man, I it is it, it I remember it being one of the absolute best science fiction and just all-time books I've ever read. It's a great read. Yeah, I mean, despite like the controversial themes, it has garnered extremely high praise. You know, it won the Hugo Award for Best Novel in 1960, which is about as good as sci-fi gets. It's also widely credited as inspiring, you know, many of the themes that have become staples of the genre. So things like power armor and spacefaring militaristic expansion, uh, military-grade hypnosis for training, drop pods, high-tech weaponry. A lot of these things have just become... I mean, like, when you think of sci-fi military sci-fi drop pods and battle armor that's just like the starting point for almost every great sci-fi story that i love and that stuff all came from this book and you know when another thing that i love about great sci-fi is that it usually accurately predicts um a lot of technology that just like can't like is almost unimaginable for the time that the science fiction piece or work was written and so power armor like you know, I know, I know that that's a thing that's in development right now. I mean, I've seen stuff on like Wired.com and stuff like that about you know the stuff that they're testing, like this exoskeleton suits. I mean, it's so cool when a book that's written in the '50s or '60s is so accurately predicting uh, the future of technology, especially like cool military weapons. Like it's because it makes you pay attention to the sci-fi that's being written now. The, the really great stuff and saying, okay, like what is possible in the future? I mean, that is, it's just what I love about the genre. I mean, we've discussed that before on the show about how the people that grew up reading this sci-fi and reading about this technology are the people that went on to, you know, get into the fields of science and technology and STEM, you know, and they're the people that were bringing these technologies to life in the real world. And I mean, you just have to assume that that inspiration of reading sci-fi reading about power armor when you're a kid and makes you want to like go into robotics or something when you grow up. I mean, that's an interesting, like, um, you know, cause and effect perspective, but I also just think that science fiction writers 
just really understand how the world works, where the world came from, and they're just extrapolating what the future is going to bring. So it's it's not even, in my opinion, it's not that they're influencing the next generation of builders, creators, and so forth. They are just like flat out saying, you know, this is inevitable. This will happen like in AI's case or in, uh, you know, us um, leaving planet Earth and colonizing Mars and then maybe the solar system and maybe interstellar travel. I mean, I, I think they're just extrapolating and saying like, this is what the human species is capable of. Y- even when it seems like, you know, there's no way that you could predict the cell phone back in the Star Trek era of the original TV show. But of course, they got their little, their little, um, I don't even know what they're called. The communicators. communicators. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I just love those those predictions because it it kind of it kind of like lends this credibility to futurists because they're it's not like these wild ass guesses like it is uh, these somewhat inspired predictions that a lot of times Definitely. come true. I think that it's probably a little bit of both. You know, like when you look at the grand scale of like predicting that humans will eventually be spacefaring colonized planets. You know, it's like. That is a very easy extrapolation for someone with a sci-fi mind, but also, I think more of like the granular level of influencing the like on-the-ground technology and the development of something like, you know, a power armor or something. That's more the stuff that I would imagine, you know, like the scientists and the technologists of the future are inspired by as children. Because I know, you know, like if I had that kind of mind and I read about power armor it would definitely make me think like oh man i'm gonna put my robotic skills to use i want to bring this to pass whenever i grow up so i think it's probably a a little bit of both it's like amazing foresight and also inspiring the future generations i i agree elon musk i know you've seen star wars please build a lightsaber come on i have your flamethrower or you're not a flamethrower i want a lightsaber Oh, there's only like 200,000 of those flamethrowers. I mean, not a flamethrower is out there too. So you really, yeah. really lucked out. Well, speaking yeah, of lucked out. predicting the future, I mean, this book was published in 1959, which was only two years into the space race. And there are some amazingly accurate references to operating in zero gravity, which, you know, there's there was not that much experience with that. And, you know, like, again, he's extrapolating like what it's like to move in zero gravity and like what it's like to link up with a ship that's in orbit. I mean, it's just the the book is like such a work of genius, but anyone that's familiar with the movie, you know, you're, you know, you're used to them fighting the arachnids. There's also like a whole other chapter in the beginning that might seem strange to anyone that, you know, is reading the book for the first time where they're fighting these other species. Like they're fighting these nine foot tall humanoids. So there are some deviations, but between the movie and the book, there are also a lot of similarities. Like a lot of the, you know, a lot of the characters are just, you know, carbon copies from the book to the silver screen, like Johnny Rico, you know, it's, it's the exact same character that you're following. And then characters like Ace and Dizzy, all these characters, they're just like legendary from the movie, except in the book uh, Dizzy is a man, so there's a gender swap. And then there's others that are like Mr. Radchek in the book. He's Mr. Dubois, you know, so there's slight name changes and there's like blending of some of the elements as they go from book to movie. But some of these things like 
Johnny's father's speech about not joining up, it's pulled almost word for word from the book. And then, uh, yeah, you know, from the from the beginning, Johnny joining up until, uh, you know, the end of his training, the movie is like remarkably faithful. Although there is a significant lack of gymnastics football in this book. That's one thing yeah. that Robert Heinlein did not predict about the future we all live in now. Yeah, you know what? What would you say about the difference in tone? Because I I feel like if you compare the two, I mean, I see what you're saying, but they just don't feel that similar to me. Well, we're gonna get into the tone. Implies that the book is okay. Yeah, we're gonna the the uh, the movie definitely had a a completely different vision with this same source material, but we'll get into that when we get to the movie. All right, so. Uh, we've talked about this before also, you know, like I love a good training story. I, I think I first started obsessing with training stories when I was doing my FITP, my flight instructor training program, which we spoke about in the episode with Rusty going through the wind tunnel, you know, and since that is basically like, it's almost like a tunnel boot camp that just made me read a ton about different like training protocols through the military books like this were like really high on my content circuit at the time. You know, it, that for me was one of the first real like man tests I ever had, but it taught me about, you know, like adversity providing the best sense of satisfaction. And that's a, you know, that's, that's a big theme in this book is as the, as they're going through the training section, there are times, you know, where Johnny Rico wants to quit and where he, you know, finds it within himself, finds his inner resolve. And that's like a, you know, that's a, that's a really interesting plot device to me as someone who's obsessed with training. Yeah, and shout out to Rusty Lewis. That's our most listened to episode. If you haven't listened to it, you got to check it out. That was an awesome episode. And Josh, speaking of FITP training, when you said you uh, Rusty turned you from a wiener head into <laughs> a man boy, halfway functional uh, man boy. <laughs> It's still that that joke still rattles around my head and and makes me laugh and strangers look at me because I'm just looking at my looking at a bird through some binoculars and I just start laughing because I'm thinking about what you what you said on that <laughs> wiener episode. Well, I'm glad I can make somebody laugh, Brett. <laughs> I'm sure I'm not the only one. So I think that uh you know Paul Verhoeven who directed the film. He he had some strong points to make about fascism and propaganda, and you know, that that is where the book and the movie kind of differ in tone. You know, that's like uh, I'd say the book is it's more about like the psyche of a soldier, how their training programs. Uh, their reaction and teaches them to dehumanize their enemies. And it's not really through pop propaganda. Like, you know, the movie features is more through repetition of action. And that kind of comes from, you know, Robert Heinlein's background. He served in the Navy uh, from 1923 to 1934. And his writing was highly influenced by that service. You know, he wrote, he wrote about what he knew and what he knew was military training and programming and leadership so he was one of the pioneers of hard science fiction and you know through what he learned in the military about like how a soldier is taught to be the way they are you know he applied a lot of that in this book so you get a you know these really very realistic 
depictions of how they break down their soldiers and how they raise them back up. And I'd say that, that that's like, at least in the beginning of the book, that's like the significant tone. And that that's like the big difference between the book and the movie. You know, I, I feel like the movie actually did a pretty good job if you're looking for it in portraying the military uh, dehumanizing the other species. Oh, yeah. You know, by calling them these, you know, stupid bugs. And then it kind of shows like the failure of or the the hubris, if you will, of just like, oh, we're so smart. We're smart people. These bugs are stupid. And then just getting their asses handed to, you know, to, um, to them because they're just like just totally overconfident. Right. So I, I kind of I mean, dehumanization is such a bizarre thing. And it, I feel like it is this programming uh, of like the the state or the nation or whatever to get people to go overseas and shoot other people in the name of, you know, you name it, resources, religion, whatever it is, uh, because you have to, de- you know, if, if you go to Japan and you taste their wonderful food and you see their wonderful country and you, you know, it's their, it's an amazing country. It's an amazing people. But in the 1940s, I mean, you can Google some of the propaganda that the U.S. was releasing to dehumanize the enemy, because who wants to drop uh, an atomic bomb on this beautiful country with an amazing culture, right? I mean, I know that obviously imperialism in Japan was a little bit different than it is today, but I mean, it just you just it's like required, and you know, war is heck. What can I say? War is heck. <laughs> yes, we don't want to swear in war. I mean. Let's let's get into the movie then, because the movie is, I would say, like a almost entirely about fascism and propaganda. You know, the the for sure the movie is a much more streamlined affair. You know, it has all the uh, all the eighties action movie trappings you'd expect from a Paul Verhoeven movie, even though it came out in the nineties. You know, there's plenty of gratuitous violence and nudity and ridiculous set pieces. <laughs> It's like all the stuff that he pioneered in movies like RoboCop and Total Recall. And both of those movies are considered masterpieces. I'd say RoboCop kind of stands at the top of the pile, but you know, that's oh, very good. Actually, I think maybe Starship Trooper rivals RoboCop in a lot of those departments. It's it's a toss up between I, the two. You know, this is why I'm happy about this episode. I want to know why I love Starship Troopers so much. Like it got a, it got a, I don't even know if I should say this on the show, but it got like 67% on Rotten Tomatoes, that's, the critic score. And I, it's I big usually align with the critics, but I love Starship Troopers so much. And I know we have that in common. So what, Josh, why do I love it? Well, it's because Paul Verhoeven is a total genius. You know, he, he's amazing with disturbing violence on screen, but he's also amazing with commentary and satire. And when he focuses on a subject and decides to satirize it, I mean, it's just like he takes it to a degree that you've never seen before. You know, like RoboCop was all about like satirizing militarization of the police and corporate greed and corruption. And with Starship Troopers, he was said to be satirizing what he saw as the fascistic is that the word fascistic aspects of the novel sure (laughs) even though you know like when i read the novel i got more of like a you know it's like a total totalitarian vibe but it didn't seem particularly 
fascistic to me. That's a tough one. I'm going to have you say that from now on for me, Brett, all right? Um, Tomato, tomato. Yeah, exactly. But, uh, you know, the movie is all about what happens when the government and the military are intertwined in this totalitarian manner. You know, the, the illusion of freedom and the power of the media to influence the mind of the masses. Uh, Paul, Paul Verhoeven was quoted to say that the uh, fascistic elements in the movie, uh, they have elements of both a left and a right wing leaning. And the commentary is uh, how, you know, both sides are essentially the same with the same objectives and goals. And I think, you know, that's a very prescient point today, you know, with both sides of our political party vying for the same goal. I think that, you know, they wrap their sales pitch in different details, but ultimately the feeling, it really isn't that either side has our best interest in mind. No, it's all about the power grab. You know, that's, that's interesting. Something I, something I thought that was really interesting about the movie is like another, another reason that I think that this is like a secret masterpiece uh, that's not obvious when you kind of, you know, you're like, oh, this is a campy movie. But when you when you really get into it, there's these little moments, these little world building moments that, uh, I don't know, has this like sets up what a different world the future is. For example, there's this, it looks like a global society. It doesn't, because it, they talk about, um, not Brazil, what is it? What's Buenos the Aires. South American, Buenos Aires. And then they talk about Geneva and they're in this like UN convention and and everybody's speaking English and the military is co-ed and you know one of the people that gets the right uh to become a citizen instead of a civilian by joining up mentions like you know I'll I'll get I'll get a have kids cuz they give licenses to have kids totally once you yeah you know th- these great like world building moments but what kind of struck me is like okay so humanity seems together like it seems like it's it's achieved some level of coexistence and peace and globalism, but of course there's this enemy that now we have this common enemy we're fighting against, and so it's still like war, war, war at the end of the day. And I don't know. I mean, it is it is very like like cutting satire in that mili- in the the militarism of globalism. So we're we're I think we're making up words, bro. Fascistic, <laughs> but I think it, I think it makes sense to the listeners. I don't know. Oh, I'm sure we'll get some emails about it if it doesn't. Well, like you, you bring up like the togetherness. You know, there is like this. There is like this degree of wokeness in the movie that's not present in the book. You know, like an example, like the the way that like the female characters are presented in the movie. In the book, the the character dizzy who's played by dina meyer in the movie the uh the tarmac fight you know you're introduced to dizzy where dizzy is fighting sergeant zim and dizzy in the book is a male so the book doesn't have that you know that same approach to like you know the the women on the battlefield but you know i never realized until recently how bold of a move that was for hollywood there was like a strong precedent yeah i mean there was a strong precedent i call that I don't know if I call that uh, wokeness, but I mean it was just like normalizing um, gender equality. Well, that's but that's wokeness. Some, is it? Yeah, woke being woke has kind of a a, a bad rap. But well, let's talk uh, about woke a little bit, Brett. N- normalizing equality. <laughs> I, okay, I don't either. But uh, we should talk about woke because 
you know, I heard an argument. Well, I guess let me go back. There was a precedent for uh, for like strong female leads with aliens, but most of the characters, you know, female characters at the time were kind of relegated to supporting roles. And Dizzy, you know, she does become Johnny Rico's love interest eventually, but I, I never felt like she was really supporting. She always seemed to me like, you know, like a parallel character. Like she's just as good at he, uh, just as good as him at gymnastic football, and in basic training and fighting, and like the the gymnastics. Football. Yeah, the love uh. angle. It never felt exploitative to me. You know, he he does like dominate her at that one point with that t-shirt move, but it always seemed like. <laughs> they like really cared for each other and it was like a, you know, a mutual, it was a mutual idea for them to get together. But I did hear an argument that, you know, like that kind of like gender equality and wokeness was actually another satire of the whole concept of wokeness. The, uh, like the even footing of men and women being shown is kind of like a double-edged sword that in their society women are shown to have all the same rights as men including you know like the quote-unquote right for dizzy to be beaten up by sergeant zim who is a man and like the right for the women to be like torn apart limb for limb on the battlefield you know it was this this uh article i read said it was kind of like a be careful what you wish for type of satirization like i don't know huh. that's it's very interesting well the example of the gender equality that stuck out to me more than, you know, this, this love triangle or quadrangle or polygon or whatever was the female captain of the ship where, you know, it's not like weird or pointed out that it, she's like a woman captain on this starship, uh, you know, she just happens to be a woman. And so that to me is like normalizing gender equality. And, and yeah, I mean, it's it seems just like, par for the course now as it should be but in 1997 or whatever this movie came out it i mean that's that is kind of crazy like that is really like weirdly forward thinking in such a like campy like you know um popcorn movie yeah it's really cool and i'm not i'm not sure if i agree with the uh you know the idea that that was a satirization i mean it's hard to say if it was you know, that's someone reading into the intentions, you know, through like the lens of the world that we live in now, or if that was, you know, kind of Paul Verhoeven taking another jab at the concept of wokeness. So that, you know, that's a, that's a tough one for me to say, and I'm not sure where I really fall on that one, but it was a, it was an interesting idea. I'd never really thought about that before in this movie. And I, I wouldn't put it past him since, he was just like, he's like a satire master. Interesting. Let me ask you a question. What do you think of Rico's face? He's so handsome, bro. Dude, I don't like looking at his his strong, chiseled face. It, it's like being as as handsome as Rico or the actor that played Rico, that would be a huge detriment, Casper I Van feel Dien. like. You know, like, oh my gosh. I always thought he was kind of like a total tool, but in Starship Troopers, you know, it really made me appreciate Casper Van Dien. Like, I think his acting is really nuanced, and you know, like he like shows a lot of really good emotion, and totally buy into him being you know, the the leader of Rico's Roughnecks, you know, and just his action hero exploits. 
he kind of has that same story arc as uh, Tom Cruise's character in, uh, I don't know the name of it now, if it's Live, Die, Repeat, or Edge of Tomorrow, but fantastic Greatest sci-fi movie. Greatest movie ever made. <laughs> it's so good. Uh, but Tom Cruise, his character kind of like starts out as just this naive, scared, deserter kind of uh, character, and then by the end he's just this like battle-hardened, like, you know, you can't get the upper hand of him because he's seen it all. He's been through so much. He's died over and over. Like, I kind of get that vibe from, from Rico, like not quite as developed in this, but I mean, you know, when he starts re-quoting what he had heard, you know, from his mentor, I'm like, right on, dude. Like, you, like right on. Like, you, you got this. You stepped up to the plate. That's badass, you know? Like, how much do you think that is the product of propaganda? Because it's a big focus in the movie. And I think that the movie is like a true study in the power of propaganda. And it really started with Rico when he was in high school and Mr. Radchek, his science teacher, you know, just like, or civics teacher, whatever he is. He's kind of like, he's kind of like indoctrinating them through reverse psychology, like telling them that they're not good enough and they're, they'll never, you know, they'll never be able to be citizens and things like that. Uh, do, do you feel like that his evolution is a product of like that training as he's growing up? I don't, well, yes, I do, but I don't know if Mr. Rashak uh, had like actually had that intentions when he was a school teacher. Like I, I got the feeling that he maybe didn't want to recruit anybody that didn't want to go. And he wasn't like doing this reverse psychology, but maybe he just knew he didn't have to do anything because the propaganda machine with, you know, all the news stations and you see all the clips of like the starship troopers, like letting the kids play with guns and they're, yay, I want to hold it. And I mean, that definitely is like, you know, they click through all these news sources. Would you like to know more? And it's just like, everything is this pro military, um, you know, like, drum up the the nationalist uh, militaristic machine and that that's where i feel like this the satire where it's like really a satire of the book because i think the book mm-hmm. i think it was exploring this like seriously because i think the book was like this hard sci-fi like very serious novel um and it wasn't meant to be funny but i mean maybe it was meant to be exploring these concepts but this i feel like was taking it to the nth degree and just like saying this is ridiculous you know yeah like you know paul verhoeven grafted like the comparison between nazis and the federation and that's no secret but the you know the, sure. the propaganda techniques used by both just they're so insidious and the movie really shines a spotlight on the power of dehumanizing your opponent you know they they it takes no effort in this story since the enemies are inhuman already. You know, they're bugs. So that, you know, that really makes it easy for you as the viewer to step into the idea of the enemy being something besides you. You know, the broadcasts, like you said, right, they, the other. they show children like stomping on bugs, you know, on Earth, which has nothing to do with the arachnids at a very young age and you know it's showing the power of indoctrination and their mother is like cheering them on with like an orgasmic maniacal glee i can i can only yeah, imagine so you know weird. if you were already indoctrinated to this kind of regime from a young age and you were taught to believe that your enemies were subhuman that getting hit with that type of propaganda would reinforce that type of neural wiring you know if mr rashak you bring up a super interesting point if mr rashak 
knew that the propaganda machine was just destined to work with Rico, then that like really good quote, and I wrote it down because I love this quote out of the movie. He says to Rico, figuring things out for yourself is the only freedom anyone really has. Use that freedom and make up your own mind, which I think is awesome. But if, if he knows that Rico's already going to join up because the you know the propaganda machine is just so well oiled that he'll even defy his parents and he obviously has this like rich easy future vacationing on some planet or the outer rings or whatever but man that that like makes Mr. Rashak like quite a uh dark and malevolent character like whoa yeah i i feel like he is maybe not malevolent but just he's still a product of the system. You know, he is, you know, he's like a commander in the, in the military. He, Rico serves under him. So he obviously, you know, respected that career path and he, he understands the power of the propaganda. And I, I felt like, you know, he wanted the people that would be good soldiers to join up, you know, based on their own decision instead of them being, drafted you know he wanted like only the best and i feel like dealing with high school age students probably you know the best way to find those people would be to tell them like you'll never be good enough to do this so that's where my thoughts on that matter came from interesting you brought up earlier too the uh you know like the would you like to know more and you know it's like all the crazy flashy graphics those broadcasts, they, yeah, they, definitely. they really celebrate like the death and destruction caused by the meteorites that the arachnids send to Earth. It's like the rising death toll is prominently displayed in this like shiny silver font. Like it's the greatest thing that's ever happened. You know, like those broadcasts are really designed to work the population up into a frenzy. And I can only imagine the power of something like that to drive up volunteer rates. You know, it's, it's, like we said earlier, and it's very clever that Robert Heinlein and Paul Verhoeven chose to make the enemy so alien because as the viewer removes your prejudices, you can't have any type of feeling or emotion for the arachnids. And it really shines a light, like whether you realize it or not, the kind of power this media would have over the human mind, especially if you were, you know, viewing this as a 17, eight year old, 18 year old, where you're like in the, the prime of susceptibility and, the type of person that would be recruited for, you know, military expansion, like in World War II, you can really see, like, if you were taught to believe that one type of person is subhuman, and you're hit in the face with this kind of propaganda, that you would just, you might just like buy into it whole hog because it's just the world you grew up in. So you know that's interesting though because those those uh, numbers of fatalities being used as propaganda that that could be a double-edged thing you might want to hide that to achieve your goals um and i just thought of this and i i don't really know if this is an accurate assessment but um the example that just came to me is like we all know approximately how how many people died in the 9-11 attacks on the world trade center and in other places i mean it was i think around 2500 people does that sound about right i think it was close to 3000 but was yeah. it okay so you know that that's just like off the top of my head i haven't heard that number in a very long time but i know that i have no idea how many of our american troops died in the iraq war because i think if you knew that you would not maybe not support the war but if you're trying to garner support for the war you might want to talk about how many people died in that attack a lot 
Well, think uh, about so the parallel. If, think about the parallel. They're not telling people in Starship Troopers how many soldiers are dying out in the field. They're telling them how many died in the terrorist attack. You know that sends yeah, and it, all the civilians on the planets and right yeah and well they they do bring it up once I, I they did the when there was like a I don't know they they got attacked on the one of the bug planets. Um, I do remember seeing that number 100,000 troops died. And for some reason, I just thought of that because we hit that um, we hit that mark recently with COVID-19 deaths in the U.S. Like not that long ago, we hit 100,000 and it's just like such a large six-figure number. Um, so I, I don't know that number stuck out of me, but I see what you mean. I mean, the, the civilian count was definitely displayed prominently in the, in the movie's propaganda for sure. And maybe there, maybe there is some value, uh, of them broadcasting the numbers that died on the planet. I, you know, it's, uh, may, maybe it's over my head, but it's like, you know, we would still see news reports during war of, you know, when a group of soldiers would die in the Iraq war, you know, like, that was still broadcast, and it's hard to say if that was just to you know fill the news cycle. I, I'm inherently distrustful of anything I see through mainstream media, so it's hard for me to believe that there are like altruistic intentions broadcasting things like that. But it's I know there, there's a it, the broadcasting of deaths. It is it's certainly a tool in this movie to drive recruitment. Yeah. Definitely. So the uh, speaking of propaganda, the, the bugs that think segment when they are on, it's one of the broadcasts where the two talking heads are arguing about the yes. idea of there being a brain bug. You know, like one side, oh, one side is like, I'd say the argument is pretty rational. They're just like stating that once a colony reaches a certain size, 300 generations or so, they become smart and it's required to manage that many bodies. And the other side is his idea of argument is just to dominate the argument by screaming and using emotions. His strongest point being, frankly, I find the idea of a bug that thinks offensive. That's such a, right. It's such a weak <laughs> argument in the face of the facts, especially like with what happened on Clendathu. You know, it's, I think that by placing him last and making him the loudest, it makes his point not just seem valid, quote unquote, but quite possibly the correct point if you are of the particular kind of idiot this type of argument is designed to manipulate. You know, that's like, it's such a peek into the future of internet argument and tactics. You know, it's it's all marketing and no substance. Dude, that is a, that is a, a very good observation. I didn't really think about how he got the last word, but yeah, that, that lady got pwned. Boom! Internet Boom. lingo. <laughs> so let's, That's so true. Let's talk about the effects a little bit. This the what? The effects. Oh, the effects. I thought you said the the sex. Oh, woo! Not yet, Brett. Um, <laughs> okay. So, like the way this movie is filmed, you know, this is in the '90s. This is not in the the same era of CGI that we exist in today. But this movie just seems so much more convincing to me than like half of the garbage that comes out now. And I, you know, it's filmed with very bright lights. The sets are like almost clinical. There's a lot of practical effects mixed in with what I would say is like the perfect CGI and compositing. 
it really sells the illusion. Like the uh, the effects have aged tremendously well. I'd say almost timelessly so. Dude, there it's it's om- it's like Jurassic Park level. Like it, the CG is good. Uh, I mean, it is it is it is not bad at all. And Jurassic Park used a lot of practical effects mixed in with their CGI. So you know, yeah, there's... I don't. I honestly would love a. Do you know much about behind the scenes? Because some of the the moments where the arachnids are like piercing through the the infantry's like chests and like lifting them up like i have no idea how they did that with the technology that they had in the 90s i mean they i don't think they use a lot of practical effects but they must have no, cuz it looks extremely good there's a lot yeah like anytime there's like a a physical interaction you know there's going to be some practical element and you know, seeing a lot of like big arachnid he- arachnid heads and things that they would use whenever there's like a a close up of them against you know the human actors, but they just blend that so well with the CGI effects and plus you know the uh, the completely foreign appearance of the aliens. It's like something that you've never seen before. You, know, you can really sell a lot with that. But I think the the really important thing is the lighting. It's just like so bright and vibrant. It's like they're not trying to hide anything. You know, it almost makes it seem more real because, you know, there's no dark shadows to hide in. And it makes it seem as if it's not just some effects extravaganza at all. You feel like you're watching real footage for most of the arachnid shots. Oh, that's that's a very good point. Dude, I, I love the look of the arachnids. I mean, they I, I saw this movie as as a kid and uh this movie's like kind of scary when you're young like it's it's very entertaining and i've loved this movie my whole life but and i i can't say like it scares me as an adult but i still find it quite disturbing for sure because they just designed the creatures so well and i did just google arachnid cosplay and i think i have my <laughs> oh, next halloween costume idea might lo- be a uh, little ambitious for the airstream that's true. That's where you'll have to get a second we're not tent. Have any room, honey, next to your <laughs> VR setup, and then uh, an arachnid cosplay echo. tent. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I, I'm already wondering. Uh, yeah. I there's there's I got some. I I didn't. Want, I don't want to spoil it. I got something coming to the state park, and I think I'm going to turn some heads around here. <laughs> oh, that's yeah. all. I'm, that's all I'm going to say. But it, the arachnid cosplay might be uh, some next level kind of stuff i might want to reserve that for halloween parties because i i might scare some rangers around here you'll get uh the like bust out the big ranger guns to take you down the giant net so uh study it don't shoot you mentioned earlier talking about the sex uh have you heard the story about the shower scene about how it was filmed uh i have my own story about the shower scene but i have not heard the behind the scenes no so uh a lot of the actors and actresses were uncomfortable with the nudity and so they said they would only film the scene if paul verhoven was also nude so he directed the entire scene in the nude with all the actors and actresses such a no kidding such an amazing director move move right there yeah that really is wow what's your shower scene that story (laughs) what's Well, um, I might have mentioned this to you, but I'm just going to put this out there. Now, I am watching 
my language since you talked about um, teaching your kids uh, the the proper usage of swear words, and you know, I'm trying to be mindful of what kind of language I use on the show. So can I can I say boobs on our podcast? We've dropped f bombs in this episode, Brett. Uh, oh, okay. Well, I'm pretty sure I'm. It's a fifty fifty. Uh, you know, every every young heterosexual male remembers. I, I believe I'm going to speak for all of us, uh, heteronormative uh, men. Whatever you want to, whatever you want to say. I uh, I think we all remember the first time we saw boobs uh, in film or television, and it was either the movie Titanic or Starship Troopers for me, and I'm pretty sure it was Starship Troopers. So was it the shower thanks, scene? Is that the first boobs in this movie? I believe it is. Woo, yeah. Brett. And I mean, it, it's, it's interesting because once again, it's like this woke moment of it, it, it seemed gratuitous when I was a kid. It's like, Oh my gosh, this movie's ridiculous. It's got like a bunch of boobs. It's got a bunch of like people getting chopped in half by aliens. Like it's got, you know, heads getting blown off. It's, it's crazy. It's a crazy movie, but watching it as an adult it just seems like they're all having a chit chat it's totally normal it's not weird it's not sexual it's almost like they're on a european nude beach or something and it's just totally normalized and it's kind of interesting and there's actually like male nudity too although you don't see the the front uh um, it's all like very <laughs> the, the ding- <laughs> well, well i whoa i think that's where the fcc draws the line <laughs> on podcasts <laughs> but it's i don't know it's like it's kind of interesting when you when you remember the first movie you saw boobs and then you watch that same movie as an adult and you have just like a totally different relationship with a scene like that where you're like, wow, the, the dialogue is like really interesting in this. There's a lot going on and they're kind of normalizing this. Like, I don't know if I can get behind no, these fun. politics in this nude scene. <laughs> yeah. Oh, geez. Well, I guess, uh, you know, the book and the movie, both fantastic. It's hard to say which one I think is better, but I do think the movie slightly edges out the book, in my opinion. And that's... Uh, wow. That's... Wow. That's not something I would usually say about media that exists in both forms. But I think that, you know, this this movie is so well made, and it, it's so misunderstood. You know, the, the field is very split between people thinking it's total trash or a work of genius. You know, the, the reviews on its release, like you said earlier, were unfavorable. However, it does have a cult following 23, 23 years after its release. You know, critics panned it, but according to an Atlantic article I found, it was voted number 20 on Slant's top 100 movies of the 90s, which is, I mean, that's pretty baller, man. Number 20 is not bad, especially in the 90s. I mean, Jurassic Park came out in the 90s, and The Matrix came, came out in the 90s. Yeah, definitely. And I tend to put people into two categories. Those who understand the genius of the movie Starship Troopers and Total Dinguses. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so, if you love this movie, we'll probably get along just fine. If you didn't love this movie but maybe had your mind changed by listening to us talk about it, don't worry. It's not too late. You can always buy your way back into my good graces just by letting me know you've been converted. Wow. Where this this uh, episode is really going to hit a niche uh, a niche audience of 
like bird watchers and people that are debating about starship troopers whether it's good or not bird watching non-dinguses that's right bird nerds but not dinguses well that's what i got brett that's my take on what i think is one of the greatest works of art that has ever been bestowed upon man right up there with the sistine chapel oh my gosh <laughs> <laughs> where where do you put oh it in the pantheon of human art production? I think I I think I just realized what you're doing. You are doing satire. <laughs> Actually, am I not, wrong, Brett? I, I don't wish even know. I wish I, I was satirizing. Uh, oh my god, I don't even know anymore. It's that great. Um, well, I'll, I'll tell you, I love this movie. I think you did an excellent job in comparing the two. Now I want to read the book again. Um. And, you know, there's one thing before we wrap up I wanted to ask you. There, one of the kind of tropes in Starship Troopers is that to become a citizen, you're required uh, to, you know, to vote. You have to go into the military. Now, there are many different countries with uh, required military service. And I, I don't know how many people are aware of this, um, you know, because Americans were not typically, well, I can only speak for myself. I'm not super good with history. I'm not super good with, uh, you know, knowing a lot about other countries. And I think that's pretty common for people from the U.S. compared to other countries. But I looked it up because I, I did fly with a pilot many years ago who was South Korean. Great guy. And he talked a lot about how he loved that he was required to do military service in South Korea and it was, uh, according to him, looked upon by the citizens as being very, very favorable. Um, and there's quite a few. So in Israel, they're one of the countries that requires, I believe, two years at least of military service. And it's for both men and women. And they've always kind of led the charge with that. But, I mean, we're, we're talking, you know, and some of them are obvious. China, North Korea, Russia, like... You know, those aren't the examples that I'm thinking of. But, I mean, we're talking Norway, Denmark... Finland, oh, Singapore, Switzerland. It's crazy. And so I, I wanted to get your thoughts on what you think about um, required military service as opposed to just like a volunteer service. I mean, I, I can't say I'd want a draft and I don't want to go to war, but I do kind of like this concept and I'd lo- I love the uh, political atmosphere and the climate of a lot of the countries that I just uh, listed. Like North you know, Korea? So I, I, uh, not that one. <laughs> no. um, I mean, Switzerland is one of the greatest countries on earth. It's fantastic. and But I mean, I just think that there, uh, you know, there's probably a lot of reasons. There's probably a lot you could say on both sides, but I just wanted to get a quick snapshot of like what your opinion would be in, in that regard. Something you could take out of context and then uh, make me look bad with later. Yeah, absolutely. Just like Joe Rogan's uh, <laughs> podcast episode with John Stewart, they were talking about that very thing. I need to get a, I need to get a snippet to send to the New York Times to really skewer you. Ooh, well, actually, any any press is good press. So just, it's just going to be me talking about boobs. <laughs> That's the quote they use. I remember the first yeah. time I realized I was a man, <laughs> a man, uh, half formed man boy. Yeah. Well, I don't I don't know if I agree with the requirement of military service. Although I didn't grow up in 
an environment that requires that. So it's hard to say what I would feel if I grew up, you know, in Israel or South Korea or Denmark, somewhere where that's just part of your upbringing. But, uh, you know, being raised American, you know, like America is so just staunchly freedom focused. And I know that at the age where I would have been required to serve, I would have been way too selfish and self-focused to see any value in it. I probably would have resented it. I think the concept of a draft is one of the most terrifying things ever. And, you know, my thoughts on that are influenced just by reading about the Vietnam draft as I was growing up. And then as I, you know, got into my late teens, there was the, you know, the desert storm was going on, or maybe it was the second Iraq war. One of the Iraq wars was going on and the idea of a draft was being floated around. And I was just like, so scared of that idea because, you know, like I had these dreams and aspirations that I wanted to pursue and, and the idea of potentially having to be forced to go overseas and fight like terrified me. Like as I've gotten... Probably can't do a lot of free flying and content consuming and it, when you're sent off to war for sure. Well, unless you like join the Golden Knights and you get, you're part of the free fly team, but they probably don't give that to people that get drafted. Yeah, true. So, I th- you know, as I if as I've gotten older, one thing that I can really see the value in is I do think that government service or at least high levels should maybe come with some sort of requirement for having a military background, especially if you're going to be interacting with the military on the behalf of the country. This is an again another thing that, you know, I heard Joe Rogan talking about how the 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 president has so many jobs on their plate, you know, like the economy and uh, foreign relations and the military and how one person is not really qualified to do all those things. But I think that since interacting with the military is such an important element of leading the country, it should, it should be required that you have some sort of background in that field. Just so you're just more versed on, what you can do and also like what the consequences of what you can do are. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't disagree with you there. It's such a, um, important relationship and understanding that needs to, that needs to, uh, be developed between the military and the, uh, executive branch. And I don't think, uh, wars on Twitter really count. Uh, so that's a great point. Well, I loved your deep dive. Uh, if you're thinking about watching Starship Troopers, you heard it straight out of Josh's mouth. This is the greatest movie that's ever been made. It's better than the Sistine Chapel. <laughs> and I would say, satire. don't let, don't let Jake Busey's face, his unsettling <laughs> visage, scare you away. I don't like looking at him either. Okay. You know, he plays, um, I think it's Ace, Ace Levy or something like I that. I love Ace. Oh, my oh my God. He's he's Gary Busey's son. I mean, he's terminally his punchable. Smi- he's, his smile is, is absolutely haunting. But you'll see boobs. You'll see Rico's <laughs> chiseled jaw. And, uh, I mean, it's a great movie. I love this movie so much. It's a wonderful book. And so check it out. Uh, also check us out. We're on Instagram and Facebook as well um, at the Content Clearinghouse. You can go to our website. We're gonna link 
all the references, all the sources that we talked about, cchpod.com. And thank you so much for listening. We really appreciate it. Uh, We hope you uh, join us next week. We're going to have a lot more fantastic content. Would you like to know more? 